The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. The New Testament reading is 1 Peter 2, 1 to 12. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tested that the Lord is good. So, you, so as, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that is, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in, and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wages war against your soul. Keep your conducts among the conducts among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Simon. Well we are right back into our passage in First Peter as we're going through a new sermon series talking about suffering and salvation in the exile. And we are continuing right where we left off, chapter 2 of our text here today, a text that, when understood properly, empowers and emboldens believers to see how the people rooted in the holiness of God, as we talked about last week, to, to be holy as God is holy, changes the way that we live in this world that is filled with many trials and anguish. Even in the midst of persecution and doubt as strangers and aliens in a foreign land, much like the audience of these Gentiles in First Peter. So, Peter is now in chapter 2 going much deeper and going, giving us one more analogy to sink in before he starts getting into more specific orthopraxy. Uh, but before we begin our text for today, can we pray together? Let's, let's pray. Father, let your word remind us who we are in Christ and who we are becoming through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mold us into a people of the Word of God to be this priesthood of believers you've called us to be, a fruitful household of God. 
In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, today's text is a great one to remind us that our Bible isn't just a book of one testament, or that our Bible is a book of one clearly better testament to read. Even the names we give the testament sometimes I think is a misnomer. The Old Testament and the New perhaps biases us to the idea that one testament is clearly better than the rest. After all, aside from old artwork, old nature, the quality of a good old Presbyterian beverage, we associate the word old with irrelevant, decaying, or obsolete, which is why perhaps many of our Old Testament books go unread, believing that they are sort of lesser than the Word of God in place of other passages of other books. But today's passage reminds us of the mutual relationship between the Old and the New Testament as the Word of God. Because otherwise, the impact of these verses here to Peter's audience will be misunderstood. And the force of how he's telling these Gentile Christians who they are in Jesus will be missed. And the beauty of this passage will be lost. You see, uh, these scattered Christians across modern-day Turkey are called chosen and precious in God's sight. And these chosen people are to be people of the Word, the entire Word living out their status as God's obedient children in various ways. So what are those three ways in these 12 verses here today? Well, let's examine three of them. The first is the pursuit of chosen people to the Word of God. Pursuit of chosen people to the Word of God. Two, the priesthood of chosen people to the Word of God. And three, the proclamation of the chosen people to the Word of God. The pursuit of the priesthood and the proclamation. So let's, let's start here with the pursuit of the chosen people, of chosen people to the word of God. Um, if you notice in these first couple of verses here, Peter concludes his discussion on the enduring word of God in chapter one and the call to love one another in the church by speaking about how the people of God are not to use unholy words in speaking to each other. So in verse one, we see, get rid of all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. In other words, the danger of a community that is already going through persecution and suffering is that they will turn their sufferings towards one another. Hurt people hurt people. Forgetting the principle of loving each other, but instead using all of these negative things here to ruin their witness. In other words, the antidote that Peter is giving here of the enduring word that lives forever, I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, the, 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 the poison to the enduring word that lives forever is the church community hating each other, hating one another. Peter's instinct here is pastoral. You know, many of us don't find church too difficult because we disagree on doctrine or theology, particularly in a confessional denomination. Uh, rather, many of us find church hard because of the ways that relationships play itself out in the way we live and commune together. You may not remember a word that I preached two weeks ago, but many of us remember deeply a lie that someone in the church spoke about you, or maybe that the way that they talked about you from decades ago that sears into your soul today. Why do such things affect us? Because they speak directly against the mission of the church that Peter has spelled out in chapter 1. 
as people of the word of God, we hold the responsibility to each other to speak words of life to one another. Loving each other in chapter 1 requires our hatred to be put aside, that we throw off the pretension of life because that's the only way that a community can survive through living in exile and suffering together. Peter is echoing the Old Testament with the, the Israelite wanderings. You see, what threatened the Israelite people from entering into the promised land? It was malice towards one another. It was the hypocrisy of worshiping golden calves when they committed themselves to the covenant of God laid out in the Ten Commandments. It was the jealousy of wanting to go back to Egypt when they were enslaved. It was the slander against one another and Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam, against those whom God had called, all these things that threatened the Israelites at every turn. And, and Peter here, essentially here saying that you cannot survive in this new climate where the Roman Empire is turning its guns on the Christian church unless you, ruin, you get rid of the things that threaten the new community and new life in Christ. Remember God's people back in the Old Testament and then remember the psalmist in Psalm 34 and Peter's hearkening and he's using this language here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And so Peter is saying, here's something better for you as chosen people. See, uh, as Christians, we must be careful. It's not just talking about the negation right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, right? But Peter is replacing it with something even better. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue and long for spiritual milk. Peter's analogy here is not that there is, you know, somehow this literal spiritual milk here, but rather language here is, 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 is symbolic. Like those who are just born, they need milk to survive. So you too must pursue the kind of spiritual nourishment that will feed your soul so you won't fall into these traps of hatred, of malice, and slander, and so forth. What is spiritual milk? What is spiritual milk? Uh, th there is some debate surrounding this. But the most obvious connection here is that this milk is the Word of God that believers who long for God's word, feeding themselves with it, will not only avoid the very things that will destroy the community of God, but will grow up in the very salvation that Christ has won for us. In other words, the pursuit of God's chosen people is a pursuit to God's word. It's where you'll feel the most nourished, where you'll feel complete, where you'll feel most deeply and full of life and joy and peace, because that's why, why God has precisely given us this book feed his people. Now, I know when I say this, the objections that arise are many. You'll say, well, you know, pastor, appreciate that. I've, I've tried to read my Bible, but you know, I'm just not getting anything out of it. It hasn't changed my life when I read it. Or you'll say, well, you know, studying my Bible seems like a, a fine academic mental exercise, nice stories, nice moral lessons, but, but nothing really transformative. Or you'll say, well, I get what the Bible is saying, but, you know, I just find it too technical, too hard, too time-consuming. Or maybe if you're clever, if you want to sound pious, you'll say, say something like this. And this is very popular now in, in liberal theology. Oh, you know, I don't want to worship the Bible. I want to worship God. And I don't need the Word of God to worship Him. Um, 
such a mindset points to the way that you believe that the Word of God is supposed to feed you in all of those scenarios that I gave, just gave you. Um, and it shows us, really, what feeding is not in terms of feeding on spiritual milk. Here, here's what feeding is not. Feeding is not, on the Word of God, exclusively filling yourself with facts, with the book, or even information about the text. In fact, some of the best biblical scholars in the world are not believers. So feeding yourself on the Word is, is growing up like a newborn infant in the salvation of Christ that was already bought for you. Uh, what is feeding also not? Feeding is also not about personal application per se, or exclusively, I should say. It would be a mistake to the believer that the only intention of Scripture is to mold you into a better person. If that's the case, then the Bible is a horrible life application book because many of the passages of the Old and New Testament don't have any personal relevance to you per se about how to be a better moral person. Ever try reading First Chronicles and going, I'm going to apply this into my life? It would be a mistake to treat the Bible like this about a book about ethics, because you are no longer growing up and being fed by grace. You are being fed by moralism. A person who believes that the morality of Scripture is the point of Scripture. Feeding is also not about Christian worldview, as though the idea of a Christian worldview alone could transform the culture and you. Again, the Bible has much to say about a Christian worldview. I'm not negating that, but ultimately, where a Christian worldview reading of Scripture exclusively uh, fails is that it becomes more about sort of a lens to put on your eyes and less about a heart of stone that is being made into a heart of flesh. In other words, feasting on the Word of God, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, feeding yourself on spiritual milk is longing for God to speak in your life in such a way that you not just grow in your head, not just in works and good need, not just how you see the world, but it's longing for the person of God himself and longing to hear his voice. It's longing to see the goodness of God. It's hiding yourself in his words allowing the Word of God to transform you into the person that you already are in Jesus and sustaining you in such a way that you cannot imagine life without Him. Do you see the difference about those two ways of reading Scripture? Those ways I described previously, they make Scripture about you. This way, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, makes Scripture properly on its right focus, on the person of God Himself. So it's not just about knowledge, although it's certainly important for us to know your Bibles. It's not just about personal transformation, and certainly we long for it. It's not just about the lens to see the world. It's about seeing the goodness of God and growing in the grace of the reality that Jesus saves. So if you've tasted, if you've experienced God's rich grace, then it can't help but drive you to be fed by His Word. It's about desiring God first than desiring the benefits of God. So how can you have this kind of relationship with the Word of God? 
In our faith tradition in the Reformed faith, as they search through scriptures, what they realize is that such a relationship of spiritual nourishment, spiritual milk with God's word cannot exist unless God himself places in us his spirit to receive it. In other words, the first step with this kind of relationship with God's word that opens up the word in this way that I've just described is to be, recognize that God himself needs to reveal it to us in order for us to be fed. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our church's doctrinal statement, puts it this way in chapter 1, paragraph 6. Uh, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things are to be revealed in the word. In other words, the secret to having a relationship with the Word of God that becomes life-giving rather than just a rote exercise is to recognize that without the Holy Spirit, it's going to make Bible reading into a chore or a task or something that you read but never touches you or something that you read and you wonder why it's so dull and has become so stale. It's because you're trying to feed yourself, you see, apart from the Spirit's power. And years and years can go by. And we could be, all be reading our Bibles, but it hasn't penetrated the surface of our souls because we're not letting God speak to us and feed us. Feed us. Like a father or mother feeding their infant child. But if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you've had an encounter with Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of your souls, His death for our sins, his righteousness in place of our righteousness. If you've witnessed the Spirit's work in your life, then things radically change in your approach to Scripture. You're no longer demanding the Word of God to do something for you, but rather you're allowing God's Word to change you because you're opening yourself up and putting yourself under submission of what the Spirit of God has to say. An infant cannot do anything but receive the milk and submit itself to it. And likewise, we as God's people are allowing the milk of, of the word to feed us and not demand it feed us in a particular way. And if you're feeding yourself in this way, then whatever pains or sufferings you might face, you're readying yourself with the right remedy that will truly give you strength when you don't have anything left. Trusting in the Spirit's work to feed you in the word will give you the grace to read the Bible without placing demands on it. It becomes an act of worship that leads you to the praise of God. And then you get everything else after that. You get the information and the knowledge of Scripture. You get the moral transformation. You get with the relationship between the Christian worldview and society around you. All that falls into place when the center of why you're reading is to allow God's Spirit to lead you to Christ chosen people will pursue the word of God and see that the Lord is good. What else will chosen people see? That they are a priesthood of the word. In verses 4 to 8 of our text here today, we see this extended discourse where Peter is giving an explanation of several Old Testament passages and equating it to how these exiled Gentiles should now see themselves. And this is incredibly astonishing to read and witness because it's shattering many categories of who the Old Testament people thought that they were, what the household was, and what they were built on. 
Peter speaks of the living stone in these verses that was chosen and precious. This picture that we talked about last week about counting the cost of Christ and seeing Christ who was chosen and foreknown before the beginning of time, this living stone is rejected by mankind and is setting a new foundation for the people of God. Now, what Peter is doing is he's alluding to two texts here. Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, and Isaiah 28, 16. Uh, you can read it on the screen, where the rejection of this living stone becomes the cornerstone, this foundational piece of stone. That's what a cornerstone is. Uh, I am not a contractor or an architect, but I've been told that the cornerstone is really important. It's foundational for the whole building. And so if Jesus, the, the great cornerstone of the Christian faith, is rejected and despised, then we, as the household of God, these living stones, can endure rejection and suffering and exile. Why? Why? Because the cornerstone is firm. Because the cornerstone is secure. Because Christ himself has chosen us to be a part of this building, part of this household of God. So those who stumble on this rock are living in disobedience. They're destined to stumble because they rejected Christ. But what exactly is this house that Peter is referring to? Is this just some sort of just nice little metaphor? Um, you see, this just isn't any old house as a metaphor for building community. This house is actually alluding to the Old Testament temple. The promise that God made to King David regarding the place where his kingdom would dwell. So look on the screen and see 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this, you see, this house isn't just any old house. If you read just the New Testament, you will completely miss out on this analogy. This house is supposed to represent the eternal kingdom of God, the temple. It's supposed to demonstrate the full presence of God. When David's son, King Solomon, built the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, look at what this temple is supposed to represent. So let's look at these verses. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. In other words here, this sort of covenant relationship with the people of God was supposed to establish a temple that was supposed to endure forever. It was to establish God's presence with his people. He would not abandon them. And at the center of this temple, its chief place was placed the Ark of the Covenant in, in the holiest of holies. It represented this covenantal promise of God that he would be there. He would fulfill all that he had written. Who constituted this temple? In the Old Testament, it was the priesthood. Uniquely, these Levite priests who were chosen, but, uh, but, but basically uh, to, to represent all of Israel. In fact, Israel itself as a nation was designated to be this priesthood if they obeyed God's commandments. 
So it wasn't just for the Levite priests in the Old Testament, but it was supposed to be the entire people of God. Look at Exodus 19, 6, 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you see, the priesthood was, yes, specifically for the Levites to be able to maintain the temple and to, to offer sacrifices, right, to uphold the law of God, but it was supposed to be a representation of the priesthood of all the people of God. So what happened? Did Israel keep the commandments? Did they make this eternal kingdom of God? Well, if you read your Old Testament, you'll notice that the story doesn't quite work out so well for Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, you go, well, what, what happened? Is God a liar? Right? The temple was destroyed. The Israelites were sent in exile. They came back. They rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't quite the same. It all seems as though Israel and God both failed to fulfill this promise. And so what is Peter doing? Peter's now applying all of these Old Testament passages to the people of God and applies them here something incredibly dramatic. Whereas the physical building of the temple was made with inanimate materials, this new temple will be built with living stones, the people of God. Whereas the former temple was a symbol and a sign of God's eternal kingdom that was destroyed and rebuilt, the new temple of Christ was destroyed and he was rebuilt, but he will reign forever. Whereas the former temple had sort of this Ark of the Covenant designated to be this physical presence of God's promise to his people, the New Testament living temple of the people of God would have this Holy Spirit in them to demonstrate that God will keep his promises and he will never leave them or forsake them. The chosen people of God are made into something completely different and new, something that they didn't earn, something that they couldn't keep and yet given a title that is unimaginably beautiful and worthy. They are now this priesthood of all believers. Uh, you know what this is like? Um, so I have to admit, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for uh, reality competition shows, um, particularly shows that involve like judging art. So, you know, like America's Got Talent, you know, The Voice, you know, all of these things. I love these shows because they have this very simple and powerful premise. And of course, I'm a preacher, so I'm going to try and gospelize it, right? But this is what I'm going to do. So th this is what I see in these shows, right? Uh, you have someone who comes up to a stage. They're unknown. They're unseen. They're invisible to the world. And then all of a sudden, they start performing, start singing, they start doing card tricks, whatever. And all of a sudden, someone who, on the other side, the judge's table, someone who is deemed totally worthy, declares, I choose you. I want you. I need you on my team. We will go far, and we will build this thing together. And I love that moment because it's, it's, it's such a picture of the gospel. But let's, you know what, let's take this analogy one step further. What if you had someone go up to that stage who was completely unworthy to be chosen, who couldn't sing, who couldn't dance, who couldn't perform? And that judge sits back in that chair and goes, you know what, I still want you. I still choose you. Come on. We'll go far and build this thing up together. How scandalous 
would that be? How unfair it would seem to have that happen, except if, and only if, that it was the complete grace of the judge to grant them this kind of access. How powerful is that to say, you know, you cannot bring anything of value except the value I give to you. I still want you. I still want to pursue you. One of the big revelations of the Protestant Reformation was this idea of reclaiming this language of 1 Peter, that there is a priesthood that belongs to all believers. There is no special or sacred order to the priesthood. You don't have to be the most brilliant person in order to study the Word of God. You don't need to have the most active gifts, the spiritual gifts, to be able to be useful to His kingdom. All of us have access to the Word of God, and all of us are working as living stones to build His kingdom. Martin Luther, in his famous uh, work talking about this fact, says this about the priesthood of all believers. He says, it is pure invention that popes, bishops, and priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate or the spiritual household. Princes, lord, artisans, and farmers, the temporal estate. On the contrary, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there among them, no difference at all but of that of office. There is no true basic difference between layman and priests, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. They are all of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not all have the same work to do. So what are the implications of the idea that we are a priesthood of all believers? It means that your calling, whatever calling you have in life, is the ministry of God's word to bear in whatever you are doing to encourage one another with the scripture and the word. You can pray for one another without a priest or pastor present, to forgive one another, to serve each other in the word. These are not sacred callings that only belong to a pastor or the leaders of a church. It isn't top down, you see, it's from the bottom up. Everywhere you are working is a realm where God needs to be glorified. Your work matters deeply and truly to God. Your calling is not a fringe calling with no spiritual significance. You have something special to be a part of. Now, this doesn't mean, and hear me not saying, that there is no distinction between the ordained offices of the church. Uh, there is very much still a biblical precedent for elders and deacons. Uh, but the Christian doesn't see me or ruling elder Scott or Jason or the other deacons that's somehow higher in their place of work or vocation or vocation that you have today. Uh, it also doesn't mean that you don't have to consider to be the church to be the only place where the opportunity for spiritual work to be done. Uh, in fact, Matt Aldrich, one of our deacon chairs, uh, shared this vision in our congregational meeting in the summer. And I want to highlight his important words again. You are equipped to be engaged in the work of ministry, in the ministry of the word. And you can initiate those ministries that are most valuable and important. You don't need the church's permission, per se. Because the veil is... Right. You are a priesthood of believers. Boom. All right. Because the veil has been torn, we have a deep fellowship with God. It doesn't require an intermediary anymore. 
we have access to God because you are a priesthood of all believers. The great Reformed pastor and, and scholar Edmund Clowney writes, why would God do this? Why would God make us a priesthood of all believers? He says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. So the Lord loves because he loves. Nothing else can explain the love of God for sinners. In other words, what Peter is saying here is this, and this is the scandal. The kingdom of God was never just for Israel. It was never just for one particular group of people of God. There was no parallel track between Israel and the church. It was for the whole world to know about him. And that's what finally leads us to our last point, the proclamation of the chosen people of God in the world. So they're to pursue the word, they're to be a priesthood of the word, and now they're called to proclaim the word. Verses 9 through 12 speaks to this new reality of who we are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Each of these names that Peter is using is making this remarkable statement to Gentiles of who they really are. Each of the names in verse 9 were given as a sign to demonstrate the Israelite people, and there were designations for the Israelite people. Perhaps the greatest echo of this comes from the statement of Mount Sinai, and we've just read it in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, right? Uh, they are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They are a treasured possession, right? This, these are all language of, of God speaking to his people about who they are, and now this is being applied to the nations. So he's saying to this Gentile group, you are the Israelites. This is the name that is given to these scattered exiles across the diaspora in 1 Peter. You are not far off from the promises of God to simply be you come from a different nation, simply because you are living somewhere else. No matter what circumstances might be around you, you are still the people of God. Now, how can Peter say this? Is he sort of, you know, just playing fast and loose with the Old Testament and, you know, sort of drawing up promises where they don't exist? Is he, is he taking these passages out of context? No. Uh, Peter is seeing something far more powerful and deeper in the Old Testament. He's seeing fulfillment. He's seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Look at Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. In that day, this is a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In other words, Peter recognizes that this, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this worshiping people of God's own possession was never intended for Israel alone based upon the Old Testament promises themselves. The Old Testament fulfillment was meant for the kingdom expansion across all the lands to include the Gentile, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the nations, and to have them as a worshiping people of God, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, to be a blessing to all the nations. But can you imagine the shock of hearing this as a Gentile? That the Old Testament would have you in mind when you spent a lifetime thinking and being treated like you were an enemy of God's chosen people. 
You see, this was exactly what had been the feeling to, to have a Gentile come and be considered a part of this priesthood. It, it almost feels strange to conceive of, to, to, to bring to the mind of. Uh, these Gentile people, once God's greatest enemies, now being brought into this living temple. They weren't defined before by holiness. They weren't defined before with the status that gave them meaning and purpose, and yet here they are, a new name, a new calling, having access to this word of God, resting upon the sacrifice of Christ to be a sacrifice with their lives and bodies to build this house. They were chosen just like the chosen people from Hosea, whom God had mercy on. These, uh, once they were not a people, now they're people. Once they had received no mercy, now mercy. This is all throughout the prophet Hosea. Now they are a people who have received great mercy from the Lord. And notice here what this means. The Gentiles, the Israelites, you and I. Uh, we aren't chosen because we have something to offer God that he doesn't have. We don't have a skill set that measures up to the Lord's standards. And yet, what is the astonishing thing that Peter is, is drawing us out here? He says, we are called by God to proclaim his excellencies, the glory of his majesty. Once we felt like we had nothing to do with God, we felt like we were enemies of him, and now we are living in such a way that is giving great testimony to God's power working in the world today. Um, this should give us, in this perspective, should give us a great compassion uh, towards others who don't know Jesus yet, even those who disparage and slander us, as this text promised that they will. The astonishing thing about transformation is though that we might want to live in the past in the way that the passions of our flesh would cause us to, you know, sort of, uh, be, be sort of this Christian culture warrior. Uh, the bent of the Christian, Peter is saying, is to live in such a way that even those who speak illy against us will know that our lives are changed. Peter says that God will be glorified on the day of his coming, the day of his return, because of the way that Christians live before other non-Christians. So what this should prevent Christians from feeling is this sense of superiority to the world around them. But rather, it should give us an obligation that God uh, should help us to proclaim his word rightly to a world in need. Boldness for the gospel doesn't mean treating others with contempt. Courage isn't fighting back at those who rail against you, thinking of your standing up for Jesus as though Jesus needed your anger in that moment to convince that, convince that person. No. Keeping our conduct honorable, as Peter says, is by far way harder, the more difficult pathway. But it's the one that proclaims Jesus rightly in a world filled with outrage. Here's the brutal reality of living as a Christian today. Um, there's a book that literally just came out this week. It's called The Great Dechurching. De um, 40 million Christians have left the church completely. Uh, over the last 25 years, it's greater than the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Civil War uh, revival combined. Um, and the brutal reality of all of this deterching is that we will be attacked from those who once loved the community of God's church. You will be defined 
by our worst offenders. Uh, You will be defined by the greatest hypocrites of the Christian faith, pastors with moral failings, elders who abused uh, others in their position of power. You will be defined by straw man arguments and by ad hominem attacks. Um, Don't let these things shame you from loving Jesus. Don't let these things distract you from living, living honorably amongst the Gentiles. Peter's promising here that they will stumble because they disobey the word, but that should fill the Christian with compassion rather than arrogance. Why? Because once you were not a people, and now you are a people. Once you have not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. In this way, the Christian is submitting themselves here to a ton of agony, if we're really being faithful to the text here. It's far easier to rid yourself of a situation by resorting to malice and hatred and slander. But it's far harder, far more worthier to see yourself as a living stone, feasting on the Word of God, recognizing that you were called not by the weight of your gifts, but a God who looks at you with compassion and says to you on that stage, that you have nothing to offer and says, I want you. How does that radically change the way that you think of and speak to others that are yet waiting to hear his voice? How does this call you to serve your community and your city, your world, in such a way that they wonder, you know, what, it's, what is it like to be a Christian? How can you conduct yourself honorably in enduring the sufferings of this world in exile, knowing that your salvation is secure because Christ is the cornerstone? These are the questions that Peter is presenting us to live through the lens of the Old Testament to help us to see the new. And as we go into these next several weeks where he'll dive deeper down this spiral of what this means to look like in our lives, I pray that all of us here could see ourselves as a priesthood of all believers and loving church and loving Christ and in loving the world that God came to save. Let's pray together.